Peace be to you. Henry the Cobbling of Evil. Let us begin with a question. Welcome to Curiously Catholic, an Evangelion production. In this podcast, we're going to be picking the brains of Catholic enthusiasts to try and get to the bottom of how to live truly as a Catholic in contemporary times. My name is Dominic Melangeri, and in this episode, we have Nish. Welcome to the podcast, Nish. Hi, Dominic. Nice to be here. Thank you. Hi. How are you doing? Very well. Just yeah? a sense of relief when you put the kids down to bed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially on a Friday, right? Yep, that's the one. Yeah, uh, yeah, because we're going to be talking a little bit later in the podcast about motherhood, because uh, one of our earlier episodes was on fatherhood. We talked to Peter Holmes, so... We thought we'd get the other perspective on uh, Catholic parenting over here. Uh, so before we get into that, let's just uh, find out a bit about you. Uh, so, uh, you know, where are you from? Uh, what was your upbringing like? Were you a cradle Catholic or were you a convert? Please tell us about yourself. Okay, so I'm originally from Sri Lanka. I have a bit of an international upbringing. I um, spent my childhood in Nigeria and in a bit of time in Sri Lanka as well, and also in London, in England. And um, I went back to England for university and I was in a long distance relationship for two and a half years and moved to Auckland after that um, to get to know the guy before I actually married him. And um, after we got married, we had four daughters and I've been a stay at home mum for the last uh, almost 10 years now. Mm, 10 years. That's awesome. A stay-at-home mum, that's, that's quite countercultural in uh, today's uh, today's world. Um, yeah, so you said Nigeria, Sri Lanka, London, and now Auckland. Yeah. <laughs> How'd that happen? I mean, I'm, I, I was like, I'm a bit of a mixed bag myself, but I've only lived in uh, America, England, and now Auckland. And my, like, you know, my dad's half Italian, German, Irish, English, bit of a mixed bag. But like, I, I think I feel like Nigeria, Sri Lanka, and London, you know, wins in this uh, competition of places you've lived. <laughs> um, well, my my dad's work took him um, to Africa. He was in Zambia as well, um, mm. and then at one point, um, my mum and my brothers and I moved to London because I think the education was better um, as you got older um, in, in 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 England and. Um, and then my father moved back to Sri Lanka, which was the cue for all of us to be back together again. So we all moved. Um... Oh, so did you move to London and your dad stayed in Nigeria? Yes. For a good oh, while wow. there. Yeah. Oh, so that wow. was, I would expect, was really challenging for my mum for a while. I can only um, imagine. So how, uh, how many siblings do you have? I've got two older brothers. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's a bit of a handful moving three kids across the uh, across the world yeah and and travel back then wasn't as easy as it, it mm. wasn't as easy as it is now right you know, yeah the trips were a bit longer <laughs> yeah do you feel like you can relate to the uh, decision to move to a country with better education now you've got kids you'd be like can you say like oh i would definitely do that in a heartbeat or are you still kind of like wow my mom was insane and thank god I definitely understand what they went through and appreciate what they went through because Mm. after we got married in Auckland we moved to Melbourne and we were in Melbourne for seven years um, before we moved back to Auckland Um, 
And when we went in Melbourne, we didn't have family mm. very nearby. And so it was, and Jit was working really hard, longer hours. So when we moved back mm. to Auckland, there were a couple of things to consider. One was family, but also just the better work-life balance. Mm. So mm. I do appreciate moving around with children yeah, yeah. And, and being close to family. Yeah, and like you said, it's probably a lot easier nowadays than uh, when you when you were a child for your mum to move from Africa to London. Yeah. Uh, and then to Sri Lanka again. Man, that's crazy. Um, so you, how do, well, just trying to think, like, how does your faith fit into all this? Because, I mean, f- culturally, that must have been crazy for you. And then, like, Catholicism, was, was c- c- your Catholic faith pretty staunch throughout all of that? So, I wouldn't say that. <laughs> I am a cradle. Um, okay so i was taught the basic prayers and you know the prayers of petition and all that when i was a child with mm-hmm. no real formation um none at all really um sri lanka in the faith in sri lanka i would say is really devotional so there's a lot of deep devotion to saints to our lady it's beautiful but if you don't understand why you're doing that as a teenager Mm-hmm. It's really confronting, um, and you and you've been for a very rebellious time, where mm-hmm. I the existence of God was never a question, mm-hmm. but certainly the the dynamics between Protestantism and Catholicism that definitely played a role um, in in helping me along my journey to where I am now. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, there was no formation, and that was that was the main thing that. You basically, a priest once told me, you can't love what or who you don't know. Yes. And obviously this gold mine of a faith in the, in the church, but I didn't know any of it, so I couldn't love it. Um, mm. And so I met my husband in, the second, in my second year of university, and um, he was the first person I had actually met who gave me... Um, uh, reasonable responses. I won't say answers, but responses to my questions about these things mm. in the faith. And I'd never met any young man, for that matter, who took that kind of spiritual leadership. I was always the one who was more spiritual than everybody else. Um, mm. So it was really, it was really nice to to meet some a young person like that. And he pointed me in the direction of some incredible authors. Um, mm. And I was open to the world of Catholic books, which I had no right. idea existed. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. I started off reading. Um, he gave me Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, um, mm. which was gold. But then I moved on to reading some Scott Hahn. And the first book I read about Catholicism was Hail Holy Queen by Lady. And that was just gold, absolute mm. gold for me to discover, oh, this lady who I'd questioned and and had such difficulty, you know, um, watching my parents have so, so much devotion to her and being, yeah, yeah. no reason really, but it all made sense. And I then read um, the, the Lamb Supper um, by Scott Hahn, which is about um, the Eucharist. And that was basically the bomb. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that yeah. exploded um, in my world and the realization that the Eucharist was not a symbol gosh that yes. was a shocker 
um, in the most amazing, amazing, amazing way. And, and also going to confession as an adult, I've been to confession once my first confession. And and when I went to confession for the first time as an adult, that experience of mercy and grace was, I mean, so profound young people. And I'm saying young people because I was young when I, I first experienced these things. Um, really believe that young people really want the sacraments. They really want Jesus. And um, that's where they find him. That's where you meet him in the sacraments. Mm. And so, yeah, that's a little bit about how we kind of winded our way through there. (laughs) but got there in the end. Yeah, yeah. I think like everyone that's like, uh, everyone's a convert to Catholicism really because I feel like, unless you know you are a cradle catholic and you've had amazing formation from the very beginning um it seems that every cradle catholic has to then like later in life re-realize it like they call it like a revert but it is just you know we're called to daily conversion but like so many times i hear people talk about it it's kind of like oh yeah it wasn't until this point that i actually started believing in my faith and it's like but i've been catholic my whole life it's like yeah well you're a convert i mean that's because I, I converted when I was 22, and uh, the only difference is I didn't know any of the practices of Catholicism. But, like, once I found Catholicism, like you said, it's, it's just gold. It's like, um, I always feel like it's like every time I had a question, there was, uh, yeah, I suppose, response is the better word, but like there was an answer. But that answer led to more questions, which led to more answers, which led to more questions. And it's like, it's just a, you know, insurmountable amount of information and it just gives you so much life and so like you know i i'd really found like a gold mine as you said for my own faith when i converted but like i don't in that instance i don't feel like my conversion story is any different to say your you know reversion story it's just you know at university you found someone that gave you you know a compelling way to be catholic and that's all i had essentially uh so it's like yeah we're all converts really i guess um but yeah and I think it's, it's it's amazing how God, when you look back, how he maybe uses different people at different times to really kind of, um, I suppose, prepare the ground. Mm, well, yeah, um, definitely. There was this girl that I knew at school. Um, I was about 10. And she was the daughter of um, some Protestant missionary um, parents. And she when I look back, actually, she had a really important role to play in my faith in preparing me for, you know, my Catholic faith. Um, mm. And I remember this one time where it was becoming really trendy to swear and all the rest of it. Um, mm. And she told me this really profound thing. She said to me, from a spring, they can't, from salt water can't flow from a spring. And that resonated so much with me that, you know, later on in life as well, that we're called to be, you know, lampposts along the way Mm. for other people as well. We're meant to live our faith in a way that is really pure and and calls other people, not just for your own sanctity, obviously, but for others as well. Oh, yeah, Um, definitely, definitely. Yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing how each one has these conversion stories. Yeah, it's amazing how once your eyes have been opened, you can see you can't. It's not just like 
oh, here's God. It's like, oh, there's God. It's like, oh, and there he was the whole time, you know, because I've got that, you know, my conversion story from like a particular day in my second year at uni um, when I was 22. But like tracking back, I can probably take it back to when I was about five years old, my first experience of God. And it's like God was there then. And then he was there again at this point and this point and this point, which pushed me into these areas, which led me here, which meant I could say yes to that uh that that knocking at the door you know it's always there it's just it's insane like i i don't understand how people can't believe in god like now that i see it i see god everywhere you know um yeah it's crazy um absolutely just nature alone is enough for me i find yeah and beauty and the beauty of, and we're so lucky to live in in new zealand mm, where we see true such beautiful um landscapes find God yeah, all the time yeah i always feel like um i'm not quite like uh i'm not so much like an intellectual I, I like reading but i'm not great at it and my my faith has always been more of a uh, relationship something that i discovered and it's been more feelings based it's like i know god's real because i experienced him here and i experienced him in this way and it's just kind of an intuition and i understand like you know the need for furthering that you know relationship with knowledge and finding out who God is through reading books. But like, you know, when people are saying like, you know, prove to me that God exists and they want an intellectual debate, I'm like, so, but why, why, why this way? Cause this isn't the way that I've experienced God, you know, mm-hmm. I experienced God in like in the nature in in the Eucharist and in relationship and prayer. And it's like, you have to make that leap at some point. Yeah. Um, like even, even if you are, you know, like you're saying yourself, you know, you grew up believing in God, um, but um, it took that connection with your uh, husband uh, to to make that leap into a relationship and not just a, a philosophy game or a theology game in your head. Um, I always found it interesting is like uh, I, I did my first degree was in uh, religious studies and theology and we had the, the, um, the New Testament scholar was top five in the country and she wasn't christian and i was like well there you go you've missed the point <laughs> you know <clears throat> i mean i wasn't i didn't believe in god when i was doing that degree so i mean it's fairly easy to do that sort of thing but um kind of comes back to faith being a gift as well though doesn't it mm, oh yeah yeah i remember my um i used to work for uh i worked at the chaplaincy for seven years and i always found that concept um quite challenging the idea that faith's a gift it's like what does that mean for evangelization because if they haven't been given the gift it's like well what am i doing <laughs> you know i can't give them the gift it's it's a gift from god so um but yeah it is it is something that needs you need to be led towards and i love that like analogy you gave of being like the lamppost it's such a call on our lives to be a uh, a witness and to be um as i keep saying in I think I've said it in every episode so far, you know, we've got to live a life that's both attractive and confusing. So then, you know, people are compelled to be with us because it's attractive, but like confused as to why we're living this weird life. It's like, why do you not eat meat on Fridays? Why do you go to mass? What is mass? And not being afraid to have an answer, you know, as it says in um, the epistles uh, to Peter. But yeah, um, so you've, 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 you traveled the world, you know, before you were, at university level and uh how how is your faith 
how is your is your is your faith changed in different countries um i wouldn't say that it's changed because i've been in different countries but more that you're constantly growing i suppose if you're not going forwards in your faith you'll be going backwards so mm. i suppose it it's a growth that i hope has occurred yeah. um through my time through moving through different countries but not necessarily um because of the environment itself i mean at different stages in life you'll find different challenges anyway so university was one thing but then being at university initially was different to being at university at the end on year three um mm -hmm. and then finding yourself in a new country is different just but it doesn't matter which country that is in, in some mm. ways um unless of course you're going to like you know the middle east or something where it's it's very different but going from london to um, New Zealand, Auckland, it's not um, a bit of, it's not too much of a cultural shock. I, would, I wouldn't say that. Mm -hmm. um, but certainly, yeah, as time goes, you grow up on the inside or you try mm -hmm. to. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, yeah, the amount I've changed just uh, like from, from the time I converted to, you know, so the last 10 years has just been like, the exponential the rate of growth for me like spiritually and as a as a person and learning who god wants me to be um which you know was uh essentially to be in auckland at one point be a chaplain um be a father and husband and now to be a nurse uh which is the degree i'm currently working on which kind of brings me to our topic of conversation which is kind of like you're you're a mother of four, as we mentioned earlier. Is like, how has your, you know, have you always felt called to be a mother, or was that something that you realized? Oh, I'm going to be a mum later in life, or yeah. So I was always the kid who gravitated towards younger kids. So oh, yeah. I from a very young age, I was fascinated by children. I was always drawn to children. I knew very early on that I wanted to be a mother. Mm -hmm. um so i guess i'm i'm lucky that i had that um because it's not necessarily everyone's experience to to know that and i'm i'm privileged that i have been able to become a mother as well um so i i've always been attracted to being a mother to this concept of motherhood i suppose um because i really believe and then my faith has taught me that all women, whether or not they have children, um, are called to be mothers. Um, mm. Even if you're, if you have a vocation for apostolic celibacy or you know to to the religious life, you're still called to be a mother um, because women are just made that way. Um, John Paul II calls it the the feminine genius. Our capacity as women to uh, to to give ourselves to think of others is so great that it actually manifests in a biological space for uh, another creature to grow, another human being to mm. grow. I mean, it's, it's incredible. The awe, my faith, um, my faith has given me an absolute awe of, mm -hmm. of motherhood, um, which I didn't necessarily have this full um, perspective before, but suddenly my my faith has um, 
helped me to more fully understand um, that motherhood is actually my path to sanctity. Right, yeah. Wow, you touched on so much there. I mean, because I was just thinking, like, initially as you were talking, I was like, wow, what you're saying right now is really countercultural, especially now at the moment, saying that, like, every woman is called to be a mother. It's like, I just... Um, as a woman, especially in this uh, current climate, have you felt pressure uh, when presenting this idea to other people or like, cause like, the, you know, with the, the feminist movement and then we've got the whole transgenderism stuff, but specifically on this point with like feminism and saying like, you know, every woman's called to be a mother. Uh, have you have you met much criticism or pushback on that on that idea? Well, when I say that, I mean it doesn't necessarily mean that you will be able to be a mother, but your capacity mm. to think about others, which is what motherhood calls you to do, constantly mm. think about somebody else over yourself. Um, mm-hmm. That is what is innate to women. Um, the fact that you have children or that you don't is is almost you know it's it's a beautiful fruition of that motherhood the the physical fruition but actually our capacity as people as women to Mm -hmm. think of others to 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 have that sensitive touch that awareness of the other to see a need and try to meet it is, Mm. is what i mean yeah 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 so like, you know, like the, the spiritual motherhood as well as the physical motherhood. Yes, absolutely. And it is very countercultural. I mean, um, being a stay-at-home mum for, you know, so many years now, um, people do often ask, you know, are you going to have more? Are you, are you going to go back to work? And, and those are typical questions that I think many Catholic mums, stay-at-home mums probably face. And each one to, you know, to their own family, each one will find what works for their own family. And, mm-hmm. But the reason I am a stay-at-home mum is because, one, I want to be, and mm-hmm. husband and I are fully um, on the same page about that. Um, but also, we really believe that as parents, we are the first educators of our children. And that's not necessarily in, you know, literacy and, and, and numeracy, but it's in um, not, and not just the faith, but even in terms of culture, in terms yeah. of virtue. Um, just being a human. Eh? That's right. That, yeah, okay. That's what we do. Yeah, like I'm relating to a lot of what you're saying. Like uh, I remember, like my my earliest like kind of like dream or like fantasy of my future was, uh, you know, a big car, white picket fence, and two point four children kind of thing. Um, It's always been something that's been on my my heart to be like a dad, and um, so yeah, and like through that, I've found myself that I've always wanted to be that. kind of rock on which someone can like um a platform from which people can leap from and like to be that guide and be that you know that i guess masculine force in someone's life uh i've always felt that desire to you know i guess be a father without really knowing what a father was um but yeah and then like uh because like we we took us three years before we were able to conceive and so in that time it's like you know, I, you know, being like, uh, married and, you know, trying for children, it's kind of like you're putting yourself further into that area. And I, I, I could see myself in, uh, in the chaplaincy where I worked, I was, you know, 
looking after ministering to uh university students and i just i just saw that fatherhood coming through and it was pretty cool just to see that it actually it just happens um it's part of me being a man and i imagine as you're saying you being a woman um motherhood comes out of that i remember i used to i used to lead a bible study and one day one of the girls just said you know your bible studies they're just so masculine i was like i'm just reading the i'm just reading i don't know what that means <laughs> but i i mean i guess it's a compliment <laughs> you know she wasn't saying it critically um but yeah so like so do you do you find a lot of kind of uh strength and confidence in your um in your like femininity and motherhood uh that knowing that it comes from god and it's part of who you are absolutely i mean i think peter peter holmes in the in the fatherhood episode touched on this that our our parenthood comes from um the paternity of god our father and absolutely that's where any parental authority that we have comes from um Mm. from him from him and so and this this notion of parental authority, I feel like that's pretty countercultural counter as well. Um, I feel like society tells us that we need to be friends with our kids so much and so early mm. on that we have to dismiss this notion of parental authority. But actually, sure, you can be friends with your kids when they're adults. Um, mm, yeah. you need to exercise and you have a right to exercise your parental authority when they're minors. I mean, there's a mm. reason that children are minors and aren't allowed to make particular, you know, choices on their own or this, that, and the other. Um, and so we have to really, and I'm not saying, you know, rule with an iron fist, absolutely not, but it's to not be afraid to be demanding of your children with a lot of affection. Andy Mullins, this author that I'm reading at the moment, um, uh, he has this wonderful book called Parenting for Character. And um, in that book, he touches on this, 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 the fact that we need to be really demanding of our children and have high expectations. But equally, we need to have a high amount of affection transmitted to our children. And there's nothing wrong with having those high expectations in whatever sphere it is. Um, as long as you also meet their affection requirements as well. Mm. Because often I think in the past, maybe parents had a lot of expectations of their children, but maybe were a bit low on affection. And now Mm. I feel like we've swung the other way where we have a lot Mm. of affection and we try to to communicate our affection maybe in material things and giving in to a lot of things that yeah. our children maybe ask for or want, but not necessarily mm. demanding of our children as well. Right, I see. Yeah, I think one thing that I've noticed having uh, an 18-month-old is how much um, stuff isn't what they want. It, it's you. And, uh, you know, you can entertain them with things for a while, but nothing's more entertaining than dad lying on the floor and, you know you know, a little girl be able to jump all over me. It's like that, that, you know, face-to-face contact, that eye-to-eye contact is like, you know, where she really comes alive. Um, Other than that, you know, she can plot plot about on her own and she's doing all right. But yeah, it's like just that, that, um, I don't know, uh, kind of really um, depth of connection beats um, material kind of um, 
entertainment. Absolutely. Uh, and although the Wiggles does help a lot. Uh, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. I definitely find that with my three-year-old as well. She loves yeah, yeah. Wiggles. Um, but also, like, if you think about uh, our role as parents being modeled on God the Father, he does the same thing with us. You know, he's so patient and so loving, but he's also demanding. He's given us mm. this gift of faith, but he also expects us to do something with that faith. He expects us yeah. not to just make it to heaven, but to drag everybody we know with, yeah, yeah, along yeah. with us. When we get yeah, it, he's going to ask. Yeah, because the, the, uh, the gift from God is, like, I suppose when we think of a gift, you know, a birthday present or something, we think of a parcel that's wrapped up and then we open it and the thing in there is ours and we keep it and we do what we want with it. But the gift from God is the parcel doesn't unwrap and then you give that parcel away because the gift, does it remains a gift and the, 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 you know, the purpose of a gift is to be given. So if you're a you're given a, a gift in pure gift form. It needs to be, needs to be distributed. Uh, and I think you know this is one of the things that I love about like the depth of Catholicism, is like it, it takes this word gift and is like, oh, what is a gift? Because the world will tell you something. That's something you get, and then that becomes yours. The and then it stops being a gift and starts being a possession. Mm-hmm. And you can't possess anything that God gives you because it's a gift. He gives you true gift. He gives you true love and true truth. It's not a subjective thing, but like in you know the rawest form, and therefore, you know, it's like it's like a lion. It'll just it'll just live and just be there, and um, you know, if you allow it, it will it'll take over. And it's a good thing. It's a good thing. Really key. If you allow it, he yeah. loves us so much that he gives us so much freedom. Mm. He, he wants us to engage. Uh, with the mm. gift, like with the actual act of opening up the present, if you think about it, you know, you get a gift, are you going to open it up or are you going to put it in a cupboard or are you going to just randomly chuck it out? You know, you yes. have to do something. You have to participate in the process. Yeah, 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 yeah. I feel like there's so much pressure around gift giving nowadays. <laughs> you know, so you have to get the right gift and then there's no point in giving them something if they're just going to return it and stuff. But, you know, that's the whole other thing. Um, you mentioned about like how parenting comes from God the Father, and how Peter uh, Peter Holmes mentioned that, and it's like I suppose from our human perspective, uh, understanding fatherhood coming from the Father makes a lot of sense. But how would how does motherhood come from the Father in your experience? Yeah, so I mean, God is. I know we do, we know Jesus is obviously man, but God mm. Himself. Um, is not male or female per se, you know, mm. um, and that's a really complex um, uh, theological thing to get into on a Friday night. But um, <laughs> um, but it is what it is. Yeah, um, yeah. But I suppose how my faith has affected my motherhood is that I've come to understand that as with um, as with me being a child of God, as I've come to understand this, you know, divine filiation, that I am a child of God, um, it's not something passive. So motherhood is not something, as I, as I said, with my faith or with, with our faith and with the gift of faith, you can't be passive, you have to be engaged. I really think parenthood or motherhood is, is the same. 
you aren't, um, you know, when a baby comes, they don't come with a manual. You're not mm. how to, you know, look after them. You're not, you also come with your parental, um, I think Meg Mika, I think she calls it parental baggage, how you've been brought up and what you um, understand as motherhood or fatherhood for, for, for the boys. Um, mm. it, you come with that, but it's not necessarily something that you, it's just something that you've been brought up with. You don't necessarily know that that's exactly what you want to do or that's how you want to raise your kids. It, it's a conscious um, engagement, I think, and this conscious growing of how you want to parent as well, just like mm -hmm. with your faith. Like, how do you want to engage with your faith? You can choose which way you do it. You can do it based on, you know, you can parent based on how you've been brought up and not make any changes. You can parent um in the way society tells you or expects you to parent mm -hmm. um or you can engage with the process and decide actively decide with your husband or your wife you know is this the trajectory i want to keep going in and reassess mm. constant reassessment and you know in sailing they always talk about tact or and, and you know the slightest adjustment can change the course that you travel right yeah and i really think parenting is is like that that you have to constantly um reassess um just in like in the spiritual life that we have to you know we we might be going down a particular path and we would think oh yeah we're really comfortable with our faith and actually you could end up in a path of lukewarmness if you're not actively mm. trying to to live your faith um with a good examination of conscience or engage with yeah, yeah, the sacraments yeah. you could easily go down a different path that you didn't actually want to to be down so mm. uh my faith has helped me to kind of make analogies with my parenting as well, that I need to be active about it and not passive or just purely um, reactive because we often are just, because parenting is a difficult, difficult thing. Um, it's not an easy thing to do. It's not an easy job to do and it's demanding and, you know, you might have a busy work career your spouse might mm. be busy and you're just kind of going through the motions and and, and surviving and at some mm. stage you've got to make the decision to go from surviving to thriving you know right you've got, yeah, to, yeah, yeah. you've got to be active and that doesn't just happen overnight and it doesn't happen um uh with a one decision it's a bun it's just like a conversion, you know, that call to daily conversion. Mm. It's similar. You have to kind of constantly be making tweaks and adjustments and reassessing and, and to have yeah. the humility to do that because nothing more humbling than being a parent because <laughs> you get yeah, yeah. get it wrong all the time, but you, you keep trying. The point is to yeah, keep yeah. trying just like we do in our spiritual life. You keep, keep struggling um, towards yeah. God, keep struggling towards being a good parent. Yeah, I suppose it's that living with intentionality, which I think is a massive part of our faith. And it kind of brings me to the realization of like, you know, I guess being a parent isn't, I suppose like, you know, in, in, the, in the human mind, we compartmentalize everything. And, you know, being a parent isn't a thing. It's just being, being a Christian with a child under your care. You know, it's like, how, how am I Catholic? You know, you know, I need to be Catholic like we're called to be saints to so look at how they live their lives it's like okay so how do i do this with a child um because one of the things that likes really comes forth to me is like 
if I'm going to be working on myself and improve myself, I need to be doing that in public space. So then my child knows how to work on themselves and they see failure and they see correction that comes with that failure and not like denial or, or just sees a perfect product. And it's like, there's no way I can reach that, you know, kind of thing. Absolutely. Um, have you ever read uh, Kimberly Hahn's Life Giving Love? Oh, not yet. Oh, oh. I tell you what, I read that in my first year of marriage and just blew my freaking mind. Uh, I recommend it to everybody as the first book you read after you were married or on preparation to. Uh, but one of the things that really made me appreciate is, um, well, I guess, just women. Because um, it. it uh, Kimberly in that book talks very raw, well, very honestly and quite rawly about the, 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 she talks about marriage, but her perspective of raising children and giving birth. And she had, I think, nine pregnancies, six children, and six of those were C section. I think nine of them were C section, all of them were C sections, but only, uh, you know, so she was, she was cut every which way but loose. And she goes into great detail and she has other women's testimonies about like infertility and such like. And what it re- it really uh, it made me realize how beautiful uh, the act of giving birth is. Um, again, I'm talking this from a bloke's perspective, a very very outside perspective. Something you know, I'm certainly not going to experience ever. Um, but I know, uh, being with my wife throughout the the birthing process was just. It was just I can't even put it into words just phenomenal it changed my it changed me entirely um and like <laughs> you know ruined me a little bit <laughs> that's time for the, that's a story for another time so um i'm interested to kind of get your perspective i guess on on you know you've given birth uh four times and uh kimberly talks about it as you know that the, the giving of your whole body in the same way that christ did on the cross um can you see any resemblance in that that analogy and you know how was birth for you well uh it's similar and also does it get easier <laughs> just just for any women that are listening and <laughs> yeah. so i have had four c-sections okay um so it's kind of similar to kimberly in that sense um and i haven't really fully experienced labor so okay i, I don't uh, fully appreciate that aspect of, of giving birth. But, you know, um, C-sections are, have their own complications and difficulties mm. and struggles as well. Um, yeah, it's a major surgery, eh? It, it is. And and the recovery always surprises me with natural births. So quick compared oh, to yeah. a C-section. <laughs> Can't walk for like two days if, if you have mm. a C-section. Or, whereas with, with um, natural deliveries, you just the next day or in a few hours you're up and about and it's just amazing that the human body can do that yeah Um, yeah no definitely again i find god in that i find god in that because that is a miracle that i think the world has just gotten used to now we can Mm. get used to miracles um the world is just lacking that awe that we used to have about these things um Mm. Just because, you know, we can play God and do all sorts of different things to try and overcome different things. But actually, it is a miracle what we can do. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think like, so how how is your experience of, of like the C-section and, you know, was that an easy decision to come to? And, oh. you know, did you did you find God in it 
throughout? Um, well, my first C-section was, uh, I tried really hard, but she was breech. She didn't want to turn no. around. And yeah. um, so that decision was kind of taken out of our hands. Uh, my was that was that hard for you to be, were you kind of like one a natural birth, one a natural birth, and then it was breech. And so was that a bit heartbreaking for you? Um, a little bit. But then I also discovered that it's not the end of the world because there is such a thing as... Um, a VBAC or, you know, a natural delivery after a C-section. So you mm. baby could be delivered that way. And so I didn't lose hope um, mm -hmm. and just got on with it. You just kind of are so besotted, I suppose. Yeah, um, yeah. Or you Because I feel like there's a, a lot of pressure for women to have a natural birth, especially with your first child. And, I mean, having gone through uh, the pregnancy journey with my wife obviously not experiencing it she does is like i don't see the the um i don't see it as a good thing that's 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 some pretty bad pressure that's being put on people because i think just the carrying of a child for nine months is just an absolute you know it's it's the it's the epitome of kind of like um the christian journey it's 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 a it's a joyful suffering uh it's the most amazing experience i can only imagine the most amazing experience but at the same time getting out of chairs you know cravings you know it, it's a it's a massive toil on your body you know everything you eat is being eaten by something else you know and then all your organs get squished up and moved around and yep i yep, think um, like how how was how was pregnancy for you um i think each one is different Mm. Um, but I'm fairly lucky. I haven't had, you know, I've been very lucky. I've been very blessed to not experience too many traumatic things. I have friends who have had all sorts of um, issues with their backs and their muscles mm. in the in the middle, and it's it they suffer a lot. So I've been fairly lucky with with that. I haven't had anything that's insurmountable in terms of mm. discomfort. Um, but when I had my second, when I tried for a natural delivery with my second, um, that was, I will admit, a bit disheartening that I couldn't, um, I couldn't, couldn't do it. Um, and but you know, that's that's you just accept. And again, God has this wonderful way of making you forget all the difficulties once that baby is in your arms. Um, mm. I think that's an actual phenomenon, like a biological mm. phenomenon where um, after childbirth, like even natural childbirth, you kind of, not all women, but some women have told me that you just kind of forget. Yeah. Because yeah, yeah. <laughs> God doesn't want you to be robbed by the trauma, I suppose. Yeah, 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 yeah. And but like yeah, so you 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 managed to did you do you experience that you know you you held this child and you were just like let's do it again, <laughs> or yeah. uh, maybe not that soon. Oh, I I've always known I wanted a a, a few children. I've never known mm. how many, but I've known I've wanted to have a few children, not two. Mm. Um, and I'm very lucky that I have a husband who is very much on the same page as me. Is very mm. open to having a, a large family. I will say there's a lot of pressure after having two C-sections to not have any more. Uh, mm. There's a lot of pressure about that. And, and I would encourage people to 
I mean, each one to their own. You have to make mm. these decisions as a couple and as a person individually as well for what you, what what your body goes through and with your doctor. But to really, you know, ask questions, research it, because sometimes mm. you'd be lucky if you have a doctor with faith as well who comes with that understanding. But if you don't, um, you know, give your yourself time to heal and get strong again and. And there are lots of women out there who've had more than two C-sections. Um, mm. And it and there are risks, of course, um, that are involved with multiple C-sections. But it's possible. It is possible. Mm. All hope is not completely annihilated mm. um, just because that happens. Yeah, Kimberly goes into that in, in her book, Life-Giving Love, that very specific thing. She, um, I think after her second or third she was going in to have the, the next C-section and the doctors gave her something to sign. And luckily she read it because they were going to give her a hysterectomy. Yeah. Like without without even talking to her about it, just hand a piece of paper, sign this before you go in. Well, she's been in labor, so she's not really paying attention. But uh, yeah. You've got to be prepared for all those circumstances because they'll mm. no matter how many children you have they'll always ask at the end of it as well do you want to you know have a tubal ligation or a, this that or the other um mm. so they always prepare you for the worst and and that's yeah. okay that's okay that they do that yeah yeah but you have to kind of um do your own research and be be independent as well not be so dependent on one person's opinion i suppose yeah. Um, the other, the other thing that I found a lot of pressure with, um, as a mother in the beginning was the pressure to, to breastfeed. Um, right. and, and, and especially, you know, I found a lot of the, the midwives and everyone just kind of really honing it in that, you know, this is the best way to go about things. And again, mm. it's really good to get some perspective, um, mm. and have multiple kind of, uh, opinions about that because that's not necessarily what is best. Sometimes mm. um, I remember with my first, I put so much pressure on myself after that, after hearing all of that, and it just was not happening. This child was so unsettled, it was mm. six months old, and still really unsettled. And I started her on solids, and she was happy as Larry. Right. Yeah. And so I discovered it was because actually. I couldn't do it. I couldn't do that either in, in breastfeeding. Mm. I'm sure there's something related with C-sections and, and, and the ability to feed your child as well. But it's okay if you give your baby a little bit of formula in order to get some rest and, mm. you know, rejuvenate. And, and, yeah, there's a lot of pressure on a, dip, on a variety mm. of aspects on women um, in motherhood, especially yeah. if it's your first time. Yeah. It's really challenging um, mm. to navigate. Oh, I found it really challenging to navigate that. But yeah. now I'm just like, it's okay. Anybody yeah. say anything? The, per the perspective thing was quite funny because we ended up having three midwives throughout the whole pregnancy experience. And um, our, our first midwife, um, she had a holiday book that she couldn't get out of and she would boarded the plane the day, like the the minute my wife went to labor that's when she boarded the plane so we we'd been and then we had our antenatal uh midwife uh and she was very much kind of like she was trained as a midwife and she was like very much into the holistic water birth kind of and she gave us a very natural kind of beautiful 
kind of image of it. And then um, our other midwife, she was she was a nurse that transitioned into becoming a, a midwife, and uh, so she had a more of a clinical perspective. And it was it was funny because like you know our um, antenatal midwife is kind of like you know you know giving birth on your back doesn't make sense. You should do it on your knees. You should be doing like this. You know have a water birth. This that and the other. We had this whole kind of like you know. Uh, rose-tinted idea of the whole birthing process which you know was, was cool and like we didn't originally think about doing those things so it was good to have that perspective but the second we were having birth we were giving you know Jess was giving birth you know the midwife was right get get on the bed put her on the back do this and I was like what about this she's like yep different baby different different mother it's a different situation we're just dealing with what we've got and like I kind of really I found the clinical aspect kind of really comforting and then, like, you know, we talked about, like, do research and ask questions. Um, after the birth, my wife was losing a lot of blood, and they said, okay, we're just going to have to do this very simple um, procedure just to make sure there's no leftover placenta in, in, the, in the womb. Uh, we do it all the time. It's really easy, but we have to give you all information and say, if something goes wrong, we can do this. If something goes wrong, we can do this. And the worst-case scenario, we'll do a hysterectomy. Are you okay with that? I'm like, what? <laughs> but, like... I was comfortable. It was an, it was a normal situation. Then she was losing blood, so we just needed to sign this thing and get it done, and everything was fine. But like you know, how they have to give you all the information, so you know, don't be afraid to ask questions yeah. and stuff like that is uh, is something that I would definitely promote. Um, so you talk about all these pressures and all these, uh, uh, especially around being a, a mother and and a woman becoming a mother. Um, where where did you find God in these moments, and how did your faith support you in in having four children when the world was telling you two's enough when you've had C sections, and uh, when you know when you felt this pressure to breastfeed and you couldn't, but your baby was doing fine. You know, where did you find? How did your faith help you, and where did God come into that? Yeah, so <clears throat> I suppose I learned um, uh, through my faith. Um, not through anything that I discovered on my own, that um, that there is so much merit in suffering. And my suffering is not necessarily going to be, um, you know, in Africa or in um, the Middle East in a war or something. But my suffering, mm. this is what my suffering looks like right now. And it's not, maybe it doesn't look that big for anybody in particular, but for me it's real and this is what I have to offer up. And uniting, and the fact that I can unite that suffering to Christ on the cross, and there become thereby become a co-redeemer with Him, that mm. just changes things a little bit when you discover that, and um, and 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 that you can make holy anything, any any work that you do, and if you do it for the glory of God, that that is holy work that can be offered up to God, honestly mind blown I was really I mean Saint Therese of Avila talks about finding God in the in the middle of pots and pans and if you don't find him there you won't find him anywhere right. that really resonated with me and and Saint Jose Maria as well um finding sanctity in, in ordinary life I was just blown away by these messages that I mm. could be exactly where I am and be a saint and in my suffering I could find God um, in the suffering of the 15th nappy for the day or in the suffering of the vomit cleanup and the fact that I haven't had a shower yet and it's like, you know, 12 o'clock or whatever it is. Mm. You know, that there's, 
that it's okay to suffer one that was the first thing that it's okay to suffer because the world will tell you avoid suffering at absolutely all costs mm-hmm. you know so one it's okay that i can i can grow a thicker skin it's okay to do that um that was incredible to find out through my faith um but also that that again as i said before that offering any job even if it's not something that's necessarily costing me something and I'm enjoying doing it because when i first became a mother and i still enjoy being a mother actually and it's not the case for everyone because it's sometimes a bit of an identity crisis if you've had a really flourishing career and you've had to change um roles it, it's a bit confronting but for me i i was very lucky that i I had the absolute joy of being a stay-at-home mom when I when I first became a mom and it was like oh this is what I'm supposed to do and this is what I've been waiting for. So I was very mm-hmm. very lucky to have that experience. But to 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 know that actually, you know, changing the nappy, I and in November if I'm changing a nappy, I could offer that up for a soul in purgatory, you know. Oh, wow. That was just it it really changes your perspective that you can mm. do these things and the fact that you know realizing that playing with my child was also something not only holy for me but that's how that child finds holiness through their play because that's their work that's the substance wow. of a child's work is play that it it really it sounds all rosy and of course it isn't always rosy mm. but it really helps you to get a grasp of the bigger picture and and the mundane all of a sudden looks beautiful um mm. and so so it's kind of like looking at um yeah the mundane with kind of beatified vision almost kind of like looking for god in those moments of like you know the 18th nappy you've changed that day or like the second time you've had to change their whole outfit because of an explosion of poo you know <laughs> you know it's like you know i guess you know we have these opportunities to say oh my life is awful this is terrible this child's killing me or you can turn that around and say like what an opportunity to give this back to god and it's, would you say that it helps you enter fully into those horrible scenarios um yes yes mm-hmm. um it makes the good scenarios even better mm-hmm. um i i would say like when when we've bat- i love baptisms i just love mm-hmm. them and i have so much joy apart from you know a wedding day and have my first confession on all that um and and seeing coldplay live um love <laughs> that um my children's baptisms they give me so much joy anybody's baptism gives me so much joy and when they're little babies and they've been baptized you know and and you're feeding them in the middle of the night and they're looking at you and you're thinking oh my goodness the holy trinity lives inside this child they're not capable of sin and i am holding like i can pretend that this is like you know Jesus when he was an infant because mm. your your imagination can run wild with God and and it's beautiful their encounters their real encounters with God um if you want them to be mm. or it can be just that I'm up, I'm sleep deprived and tired which remains true no matter how beautiful the moment is mm. um but yeah the awful moments i mean everybody has awful moments um it's true but 
if you are able to try and um, turn it around quickly, as fast as you can, that's always best because you're not always going to react in the most perfect Mary Poppins way. That's just not reality. But the quicker you are able to rectify your intention, the quicker you are able to say sorry. Now, the number of times I've said sorry to my children. Mm -hmm. I think that's really important as well, that in, in, in your failures, in your sufferings, because your failures can be real sufferings, um, that you, you still find a way of finding God for yourself, but also um, helping to transmit that faith to your children. Mm -hmm. That's one big thing. I mean, as parents, we want our children to be happy. And mm -hmm. we know that the only way that they're going to have um, true happiness is if they find God somehow, and you are the instrument to try and try and deal with that and pass that yeah. on, isn't it? Yeah, right Right at the beginning of this episode, we were talking about your faith and you were talking about how you can't love something you don't know. And that kind of led you to research more into your faith and Catholicism. And, you know, I'm assuming, you know, from your story, it's, it's made you fall deeper in love. Um, and like you were talking about just then as kind of like, you kind of need to, when you're in these tough situations or like even when you're in these miraculous situations, you need to tell yourselves like, wow, this is a, a sinless human in front of me and like how telling yourself that you know kind of makes it manifest and become real to you um and so it just kind of struck me how you know do you feel that your your preparation if in like your journey of formation and getting to know the church and then for therefore fall in love with it has has that been your rock of motherhood because I guess, again, like we compartmentalize everything. Here's our faith and formation. Now I'm looking after children. Those two things are separate. But how do you think these two things come together? Oh, absolutely. They must come together. I mean, this concept of having a unity of life, of being the same person at church, you know, in mm -hmm. mass, um, at work, if you work outside the home, or in my case, at home, um, in your friendship groups, in your mum's groups, and you're wearing, being the same person everywhere. Sure, you might lose your temper a bit more at home, mm. but, you know, having that same um, uh, dialogue with God, that same, um, I want to bring God into this moment, you know, that presence of God, that everywhere I go, I want to bring that presence. You know, when I'm talking to you, I want to bring God here too, Um and, and that's, that has to be that we, we are the same person wherever we are, absolutely. And so my faith for sure has taught me that, that I've, mm. got, to, I've got to do that if I want to actually be happy because it's exhausting to be a different person in one place and a different mm. person somewhere else. Um, it's like multiple facades to, to the same coin. Um, so, yeah, I think it's really important to try and be to be the same person in, in whatever, and driving. I think Peter Holmes talked about that as well. You know, yeah. how, how you react when you're driving. And boy, is that a challenge sometimes. Yeah, but, yeah. you know, but even in that, I think it was, um, I think it was, I don't know if this was an, a friend who told me this a long time ago or this wonderful book I read called um, You Can Be a Saint by Marianne Budnick. And, she, you know, there are lots of practical examples on how you can live your faith in everyday life. And, and one was at the traffic light, you know, um, 
this mother was driving and then she said, you know, she said an aspiration to our Lord when the light turned green. And eventually the, her children um, picked up on that. And so if she forgot, they would say it. Um, and, and it's, that's how you pass on your faith, isn't it? Cause that's, yeah, that's yeah, the ultimate yeah. goal to pass on the faith to your children. Mm. But how do you do it? Um, yeah. How do you do that? How do you live it in front of them? Yeah. And, and, and yeah, Okay. Um, just one more thing with that is that you have to really show your children the joy of your faith. Um, mm. Again, Andy Mullins um, was, ta- I think it was in a presentation I was listening to, to by him. He talks about how parents need to really show um, that joy and cheerfulness in their face. So even if it means you fix your face and you come back out uh, um, into the room that's tense and you talk to your child and you smile at them and, and, and you smile after mass or you, you, know, you really demonstrate the joy that you get from your faith because children see whether or not you are just doing this for the sake of doing it or just to keep up appearances this, this faith of yours actually gives you joy and and mm. happiness even in the hard times because yeah they, they kids watch your example yeah yeah so yeah that you know falling in love with our faith through knowing what the faith teaches which means we can fall deeper in love with it which means we can find more joy in more things and i think you know uh, when you were talking about like you know telling yourself like wow this is a, an amazing creation of god it reminds me of a story um i heard a story about uh thomas aquinas and how he was before the eucharist and how he would uh at every mass at the point of consecration he would be in tears and then he would immediately after that mass go and con celebrate another mass and at the same point be in tears because he 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 knew what it was he knew that this was the coming together of heaven and earth this was the body of christ as you know the, the, the profundity of it all and so i remember one time i was in mass i was like okay so thomas aquinas real smart guy you know everyone knows who he is super intelligent i believe he's even used in like secular degrees for his thinking so he's, he's, he's universally intelligent and he reacted like this towards the eucharist so then i was like in mass and i was like okay this is this is what it is this is how he reacted because he knew that this was Jesus Christ. And like telling myself that at that point of focusing on what was happening on the altar, it changed me. It changed like, you know, I, I could, I could see why you would fall, you know, break, break into tears. You know, I, I even felt it myself. And I think, you know, knowing and being able to describe are two different things. It's like the church teaches me this. I don't fully understand it, but I'm going to, I'm going to live that. And then in living that people see it. And when they see it, then they know something about the church, but they only know it because they saw it through you. It's like, I know the church is good because every time Nish leaves mass, she's just alive. Every time she talks about the Eucharist, it, you know, she's visibly joyful. So I know there's something true about it. And, you know, like, as you're saying that, that bleeds into every aspect of our life. And, uh, you know, especially in this case, motherhood, which we know, speaking of which, we've gotten just past the hour mark now. And 
I think we could carry on talking forever about this. I've absolutely thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. I think a lot of people will as well. So thank you for joining me, Nish. Oh, thank you for having me. We'll have to get you back on to talk about more things in the future or just like part two of motherhood. Because you know? <laughs> I've got lots of questions, you know, I've got, a, I've got a mother downstairs looking after my daughter and well, she's asleep right now, but um, you know, best ways to support people and stuff like that. But yeah, well, I'll leave it there for tonight. Uh, so thanks for joining us. And uh, everyone listening, if you've enjoyed this episode, please do subscribe and rate us. Leave a comment on whatever podcast app you are listening to us on because that really does help us with our mission. Uh, the more positive reviews we get, the bigger we get, the more we can do. And also remember that this is a production of Evangelion. So check us out on evangelion.co.nz. And if you like what you see there, please do consider donating just one more thing we have a conference coming up a virtual conference in his name all the information is on the website it's on the 9th of october so please do uh sign up to that and uh, get involved we've got some amazing speakers we just uh we've got edward shree uh christopher west um sarah swafford and many more uh, so please do uh, get involved with that and uh, check us out on facebook evangelion sharing the truth and love and on our instagram page um, i think it's evangelion nz is our handle so um check that all out and thanks for listening god bless